Philippians chapter 1. And I hope that you can say, truly, it is well. I hope that you can say that with authenticity, with a genuineness of your heart, that no matter what's going on, it truly is well with your soul. I believe that the church in Philippi could say that. I believe that the church in Philippi could say, it is well with my soul. I think that they know deep down inside God's ever-knowing, ever-loving, ever-present confidence that is rooted truly, deeply in God's word and God's character and God's story. Last week we were able to look at the reasons why I want to study this letter, the reasons why this letter is so precious and near and dear to my heart. I think that Paul loved this church more than any of the other churches. I think Paul had a, a love and an affection for this church beyond all of the other churches. I think he genuinely, deeply had affections for them. I think that this letter is a perfect picture of a church that has reached maturity that has grown and is ever growing together in Christ. I think this book is a perfect picture of unity and joy. Those are the themes of this letter. Joy, unity, together in Christ. Paul is constantly encouraging the church in Philippi to be unified together in the Spirit and to glorify the Lord by having joy that surpasses every single trial that they would ever face. Confidence, contentment, in Christ and in Christ alone. I believe this book has practical exhortation that is rooted in incredibly deep doctrine. So often we tend to just say there's commands that we need to do and then there's doctrines that we need to know. And if we don't have the doctrine deeply rooted in our hearts, then the commands will mean nothing to us. We're not going to live out commands that are based in nothing. Ultimately, when we start to hit uh, difficulties when we start to hit adversity and we start to think and go, I don't really need to do this. This is a command, but why do I have to do this? Why did God give me these commands? I think that Paul addresses that issue by saying those commands need to be rooted in serious, weighty, deep doctrine. I think this book ultimately will point us to Christ. It'll point us to Christ above all things so that we would desire him and him alone beyond anything that this world has to offer. So we looked last week, not only at the reasons why I want to study this, but the beginning of the church in Philippi. We looked at Acts chapter 16. We looked at how God builds his church through the proclamation of the gospel by God opening the eyes of those that are around and by God using diverse people. I mean, you remember, who were the three people that we talked about last week that God opened their eyes, brought salvation to them and to their household? Who were the three people? First, the uh, fashionista, who was she? Lydia, right? We talked about Lydia and how she was uh, incredibly wealthy, had, you know, it was like a, a house in LA and a house in Paris, basically. She had so much wealth and was doing very well in the business world. She could reason through the scriptures, but God had not opened her eyes. So when Paul showed up to their Bible study, God opened her eyes and she was saved. The exact opposite of that was found in the second lady. And who was the, uh, the second person that we looked at? The slave girl. We looked at the slave girl. Pretty much the exact opposite. Where Lydia had everything together, everything in order, everything in its proper place. The slave girl was just crazy. Demon possessed, out of hand, completely lost. And God opened her eyes. Finally, we looked at, who was the third person we looked at? The jailer. The Philippian jailer. Just an average Joe. Blue collar worker. Wants to do his job, go home, watch the game doesn't really care much about anything. Wants to kill himself because he hasn't done his job well. And Paul says, no. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And he was saved. I think that God has begun a work in Christ Bible Church in a very similar way. God brings people from all sorts of different backgrounds, some more uh, theological, some more uh, heady and intellectual, some more on the crazy side. And if we would admit it and we're honest that a lot of us have dabbled in the crazy side of things and God has saved us, all of us have the commonality of the fact that we were lost sinners before a holy God condemned to die for our sins. 
and God saved us. God brought us together. God brought us to himself. And so Paul is writing to this church that he loves. We looked last week, verse 1, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What we didn't talk too much about last week was the fact that Paul is in prison as he is writing this. And I want to read a rather lengthy quote that I think will set the stage for where Paul has come from, where he is now, when he is writing this, where the church in Philippi is at. And I think this will encourage our hearts and set the stage for what we're about to read going forward. Immediately after his conversion, Paul's bold, fearless proclamation of the gospel aroused the ire of Damascus' Jewish population. They sought to kill him, and he was forced to flee the city by being lowered from the city wall at night in a basket, Acts chapter 9. Later, he was forced to flee from Iconium, Acts chapter 14. He was pelted with stones and left for dead at Lystra, Acts chapter 14. He was beaten thrown into jail at Philippi, Acts chapter 16, which we studied last week. He was forced to flee from Thessalonica after his preaching uh, touched off a riot in Acts chapter 17. He went from there to Berea, where he was also forced to flee, Acts chapter 17. He was mocked. He was ridiculed by Greek philosophers at Athens, Acts chapter 17. He was hauled before the Roman proconsul at Corinth in Acts 18 and, and faced both Jewish opposition and rioting Gentiles at Ephesus. Life's not going too well for this guy, right? Everybody is out to get him. As he was about to set sail from Greece to Palestine, a Jewish plot against his life forced him to change his travel plans. On the way to Jerusalem, he met the Ephesian elders at Miletus and declared to them, quote, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me that in every city, saying bonds and afflictions await me when I arrive. Acts chapter 20. When he got to Jerusalem, he was recognized in the temple by Jews from Asia Minor savagely beaten by a frenzied mob and saved from certain death when Roman soldiers arrived on the scene and arrested him in Acts chapter 21. How about that? Saved from certain death, but arrested to go to jail anyway. While Paul was in custody at Jerusalem, the Jews formed yet another plot against his life, prompting the Roman commander to send him under heavy guard to the governor at Caesarea because they thought he was going to be killed by a mob on his way there. After his case dragged on without resolution for two years and two Roman governors, Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen and appealed to Caesar in Acts chapter 25. After an eventful trip, which included being shipwrecked in a violent storm, Paul arrived at Rome in Acts 27 and 28. So as he wrote Philippians, the apostle was in his fourth year of Roman custody awaiting Emperor Nero's final decision in his case. It has been 10 years since the church in Philippi began. It's been 10 years. How do you think they've grown? Do you think that Lydia's still inviting people to her house for a home Bible study? Do you think that the jailer uh, is a little bit more aware of things going on, not falling asleep on the job anymore? And now sharing the gospel potentially with those in his jail that he is watching over? What about the slave girl? You think Lydia is discipling this slave girl? It's been 10 years. Maybe this slave girl is now teaching a Bible study. Whatever is going on in the church in Philippi, it's been 10 years for that church to grow, mature, develop overseers and deacons, shepherds and elders that are overseeing the work in the church. Ten years ago, Paul had been tossed into jail there, though he had committed no crime. Ten years ago, the jailer had seen miraculously that jail open, and they had seen that God worked in bringing that little small group of Christians together. And now a decade later, Paul is writing this letter to this church. Paul is writing while he's imprisoned, while he's in jail. This is during his first Roman imprisonment. He's going to be released. He even kind of hints at that. It sounds like I'm going to be let go. And he's saying, I'm about to be let go. I'm about to be released. I know that's going to happen. It's, it's coming. 
And he is released, and when he is released, he writes 1 Timothy and Titus, and then he is um, brought back into jail, imprisoned yet again. He writes 2 Timothy during his second imprisonment, and then he is beheaded. And as he's thinking, he's in his jail cell, he's thinking, what's going on in the church in Philippi? And as he's thinking about this church, he writes these words in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. One long, run-on sentence in the Greek, one pregnant sentence that Paul just cannot contain the things that he's feeling, so he just bleeds on this church. And he writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. One long run-on sentence that I think provides three amazing responses when you see the work of God in the people around you. Three responses when you see God at work in the people around you. Ten years removed from the beginning of this church, and Paul is remembering this church and constantly thinking of this church. And as he's thinking of this church, three things pop up as he's writing this long run-on sentence. Their responses to his remembering God working, God beginning the work, God doing the work, God promising to complete the work. And he responds in thanksgiving and praise, and specifically three things this morning that we'll look at, three responses to God's work in people around you. Number one, he responds with thanksgiving. He responds with thanksgiving. Verse three, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Thanksgiving is coming. It's almost here. And we, we tend, during the Thanksgiving meal, we tend to gather around the table and talk about the things that we are thankful for, how God has worked in our midst, how God has provided, how God has given, how God has been gracious. What would Paul say at your Thanksgiving table in a few weeks. He wouldn't say, thank you, God, for the food. I think he would say that down the road, but that's not first. He wouldn't start off with, thank you, God, for my beautiful house. Thank you, God, for uh, the, the many gifts that you've given. I've got a car that hasn't blown up yet. Thank you very much. I've got a beautiful dog. It's just really precious and cute. Thank you for my family. Where does Paul go first? I think where he goes is a sign of immense spiritual maturity. He first goes to God. I thank God. I thank God. And I thank God specifically for the people around me that God is working in. I thank God for the people around me that God is working in. I thank God for what God is doing in the people around me. So often we go to the gifts that God has given to us and praise the Lord for the gifts. Those are good but Paul says, I remember God in my prayer first and foremost, and I remember the work that he's doing in those around me. He goes to spiritual realities before he goes to physical needs. How many of us just jump right into, God, please help me with this. I need this. I need this. I need this. And Paul jumps right into praise. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. He uses that word, thank. It's a word that we are familiar with. In the Greek, it's a word that if we're honest, the, the Roman Catholic Church just stole from us. Eucharist. Eucharisteo. I am overflowing with praise. I am overflowing. I cannot contain my gratitude for what Jesus is doing in your midst. Does that give new meaning to what we do when we gather together for communion? Roman Catholic Church calls it the Eucharist, and it is a celebration. We shouldn't be afraid to call it overflowing with thanksgiving for what Jesus has done on the cross on our behalf. This is high praise. This is high thanksgiving. 
and he goes first to spiritual realities. And he says in verse 4, I am always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. There's a lot of alls in this sentence. There's a lot of always, every, all. Why is he saying that? Remember in chapter 4, he gets to practical exhortation, and there are two women, Yodia and Syntyche, that are struggling to get along. And as the overseer and deacons of this church are reading this letter, and they read from Paul, I thank my God for you. Maybe Yodia is thinking, uh, he's probably going to say, I thank God for you, Yodia, because you're always in the right. And that woman that you're struggling with, she's in the wrong. Syntyche's thinking the same thing, right? I thank my God that Yodia is just wrong and you're right. I think that's one of the reasons why Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, and then specifically in my every prayer, verse 4, for you all. Nobody is left out of this prayer, of this thanksgiving. He's not just praying for the people that are giving the most. He's, just, he's not just thanking God for the people that are leading the Bible studies and bringing people to Christ. He's not just thanking God for the people that are serving faithfully, though he is thanking God for those people. He is thanking God for every single member of this church. Are there people in your circles in this church that you struggle to thank God for? Let's be honest. Let's be really honest. Is that one of the reasons why you came to Christ Bible Church and didn't stay at the bridge? Let's not run away from problems. Paul says, I thank God that he's doing the work in everybody in your church. Nobody's left out of that list. If there are problems that are going on in our church, issues of reconciliation, Paul would say, get get it together because I'm thanking the Lord that he's doing a work in your midst. Always offering prayer with joy. There's anybody in their right mind who would have reason to not have joy. It's Paul. I just read that long quote. This poor guy just has the worst, most trial-inducive and crazy. It's, it's unbelievable. This life is very, very challenging. And Paul says, I have joy. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I'm in. I have joy. And I have joy for you. I have joy for you. You two women that are struggling, and I have to write this letter to, I have joy for you, because I know God's doing a work in you, through you. Do you struggle to see the work that God is doing in the people around you and give thanks for that work? Do you struggle to give thanks for the work that God is doing in the people around you, in this church, the people sitting next to you? What should we be thanking the Lord for? Paul answers that in verse 5. I'm giving thanks in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. That word participation, you know it. Better translated, fellowship in the gospel. Fellowship, koinonia. I give praise to God and thanksgiving to God because you are partners with me in the work of the gospel. And you are partners from the first day until now. Hey, we can say that at Christ Bible Church. We can say that. I praise God for Brian because from the first day of this church until now, he's a partner in the gospel. We can say that with and around each other, for each other. How do you participate in the gospel? How does Lydia participate in the gospel? How does the slave girl participate in the gospel? Remember, he's writing this letter to those specific people. What did they do that was participating in the gospel? How did they fellowship in the gospel together? Let me give you a couple ways that we can partner in the gospel, ways that the Philippian church did it, and other ways that we can do it as well. Number one, the Philippian church financially participated in in fellowship with the gospel. The gospel is going to go forth. Paul says, want the gospel to go forth. And the Philippian church says, how can we take care of your needs? How can we get the gospel to go forth? We'll give whatever you need. We'll give to the cause of the gospel. Do you give to the cause of the gospel? Do you give to people? Do you give to missionaries? Do you give financially over and above the things that you would normally tithe to the people that you know who are getting dirty in the work of the gospel? 
Secondly, I think that the Philippian church gave of their time. They gave of their time. And brothers and sisters, by God's grace, those of you who've been in the core group who've been helping with setup and teardown, I know you give of your time. You give of your sleep. That's why God gave us all an extra hour last night, because I know that you give of your sleep. Do you give of your time? What is your time spent on in pastoring student ministries for a number of years, the biggest time waster? What's the biggest time waster that young men struggle with? Video games. Oh, please, just throw it into a blender. Just get rid of it. Not that they're inherently bad. Some of them are. What do you spend your time on? Is your time spent partnering in gospel work, in missions work? During the week, do you give your time to go tangibly, practically, intentionally to a place to eat to share the gospel? Do you go in your neighborhood and share the gospel with people? Do you invite them to come to church? Do you invite them to come hear the good news of Jesus Christ? Do you spend time discipling your family? Do you give financially to the the work of the church and the work of the gospel? Do you give of your time? Number three, your effort and your energy. Do you give of your effort and your energy? This kind of goes hand in hand with time. But do you give of the things uh, that maybe you have to sacrifice to say, I will be a part of what God is doing here? Number four, conversations. Conversations. Are your conversations selfless? Are they centered on others and the work that God is doing in others? Or are they centered on you and the things that you might need? There are so many ways that we partner in the gospel. Paul is writing that I am praising God that you have participated, have fellowshiped in the gospel from the first day when Lydia started opening up her home for a Bible study, from the first day that the slave girl was converted, from the first day that the jailer and his whole household was converted, they have been working in gospel ministry. Yes, they're probably tired. Yes, they're getting worn out. But they are still growing. They are still going. And for 10 years, Paul is able to say, from the first day until now, you've participated with me. This type of thanksgiving is only possible if you are a believer. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Familiar passage. Romans chapter 1, familiar passage to us. If you, if you go to verse 18, you know, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Why? Because that which is known about God's evident since the creation of the world, verse 20, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen so that everyone is without excuse. Verse 21, you know it, but we tend to forget the second portion of why they are or how they are suppressing the truth. Verse 21, four, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God. That's the one we normally remember. They don't honor him as God. They know that he's God, but they don't honor him as God. But look at what else characterizes those who suppress the truth. They don't honor God or give what? Give thanks. They don't honor God and they don't give thanks. Sure, non-believers give thanks, but they don't give this kind of thanks. They thank God every once in a while for things that he gives, for things that he gives to them graciously. They know that they don't deserve it, but they don't thank God ultimately for sending Christ in their place on the cross, for bringing them from a place of alienation to a place of reconciliation, being reconciled to the Father. They do not thank the Lord for that. They don't thank God for the work that God is doing to sanctify the people around them. They're not being sanctified themselves. So I ask us, Christ Bible Church, what are we thankful for? What are we thankful for? My guess is that just because of the habit that we've grown accustomed to with thanking the Lord before our meals, this is just my guess, is that we have a tendency to be thankful more for that which we are going to eat and will be gone out of our system in just a matter of hours versus the work that God eternally does in us and through us on a daily basis. I think we tend to look to the temporal instead of the eternal. 
And not only what are we thankful for, but how are we going to become thankful for the work that God does in each other's lives? It's only when we are in community together, life on life, in sticky, messy situations where we're hurting each other. The only way that I know that you are growing is if I know where you are now in Christ, if I know where you are in your walk with the Lord, and I see you take more steps, stumble, fall, and keep on growing. Then I can say, I see growth. I see growth. The only way that you can see growth in me is if we're able to be life on life. We need to be together that way. What is one response to seeing the work of God in the lives of those around you? It's thanksgiving. Turn back to Philippians chapter 1. Thanksgiving. Paul gives thanks for this church in view of their participation, their fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. The second response that comes from the work that God does in the lives of those around you, seeing that work, the second response is that of confidence. Not only thanksgiving, but confidence. Confidence. Verse 6, my Bible starts with three words in italics. For I am convinced or confident. I have a conviction that I am absolutely convinced of. Those three words, what does it mean when they're in italics? What does that mean? It means that they're not there in the original. They're added to help us grasp the concept of what this verse is trying to say. But you could literally read this. I am thanking my God in all my remembrance of you. Verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, confident of this very thing. It's a participle. It's attached to why he is giving thanks, the main verb in verse 3. Why I'm giving thanks is because I'm confident of what God is doing in and through you. And notice what he is not confident in. He's not confident in the people and their doing to get them to the finish line, right? He's confident, verse 6, of this very thing that God, who began the good work, will perfect it. He's confident in God. And he's confident that God, who began the good work, will complete the work in and through this church in Philippi. Again, if there is anyone in the world who had reason to doubt God's work, I think it would have been Paul. Okay, I'm stuck. I keep on getting thrown into jail. I keep on getting whipped. I keep on getting beaten. God, where are you? God, are you going to get me to the next destination alive? God, are you working? Are you real? Are you here? He's in prison. He could have written, I'm confident that if I get out of prison and come back to you and I'm able to shepherd you, then I know you'll be able to be okay. But that gives us an insight. Your completion and maturity in Christ is not dependent upon me, any of the other leaders here. Your maturity in Christ is dependent solely upon God himself who began that work. He began it, he will complete it. That's why Paul doesn't say, I'm confident that you guys are doing well and you're gonna keep doing well on your own strength. No, I'm confident that God is doing well in and through you. He was in prison And people, as we get down into the latter verses in chapter 1, people are saying all kinds of mean things against him. They're saying, oh, Paul's lazy. Paul's preaching a wrong message. That's why he's in jail. Paul's not really saved. Paul's really not doing the work of Christ. They're trying to be antagonistic against him. And he says, what then? If the gospel is proclaimed, I don't care what people say about me. I don't care what people say. Even as he is sitting here in prison, He isn't talking about his imprisonment right off the bat. He's talking about the fact that the word of God is never bound, is never enchained, is never imprisoned. And therefore, God's word will go forth, God's work will happen, and he's confident that it's going to come about. Where does his confidence come from? Verse 6, you know his confidence comes from the fact that God started the work. God was the one who started the work. This gets into a huge issue that someday down the road in our family Bible hour we'll study. Who is it that acts in the act of salvation in saving a soul? Who is it that takes the first step, that makes the first move? Who is it? It's God. Oh, it feels like it's us. You talk to new believers, and I love listening to the way that they speak 
because they say, I received Christ. I profess Christ. I accepted him as Lord and Savior. I repented my sins. I turned. I was seeking the Lord and I found him. Praise the Lord that God gripped their hearts and saved them. But I think that they will come to a place where they realize, just like Charles Spurgeon says, it wasn't me that was seeking God. It was God that was seeking me. And even when I thought I was going after him, it's only because God had first gone after me. Let's let's do a, a tiny little study on the work that God does in us before we ever go towards him. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Go ahead and turn there. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. He, that is God, saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. He saved us not because of what we've done. You can add in there, a good deed is seeking after the Lord, right? You can add that in there. He didn't save us because we were seeking after him. In fact, Romans tells us, and it's all throughout the scriptures, that nobody does seek after him. Even Lydia, who was trying to figure out and reason with the scriptures, biblically we know she wasn't seeking after God. God was calling her to himself. He saved us, not on a basis of things that we've done, but by his good pleasure. Go to John chapter 10, a familiar passage to us. John chapter 10. Verse 27, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Why? Because it's I who brought them to my hand, I'm going to keep them in my hand. If they were the ones that wandered up into my hand, then they are the ones that could wander out of my hand, but because I was the one that said, you, in my hand. I'm the one that's going to keep them there. This is the doctrine of eternal security or perseverance of the saints. I think a better way to say it is preservation of the saints. God started the work. He's going to preserve us until the day that we see him face to face. He's going to get us there. Romans chapter 8. Just two more passages. Romans chapter 8. You know this one as well. Verse 38 For I am convinced, this is Paul writing, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because his love is what bought us, what brought us to himself. His love is what drew us. It's his love that will keep us and sustain us. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, this is my favorite one. I love this passage. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, this is one that we should memorize. If you're ever discouraged, this is an encouragement. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, now may the God of peace himself, by himself, sanctify you entirely, thoroughly, utterly, And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because faithful is he who calls, and he also will bring it to pass. He's the one who calls you. It's an effectual call where he says you will be saved, and you are saved, and he brings you to himself. He gives you the gift of regeneration. He creates a new creature out of you. And he will preserve you complete until the last day. That's why Paul says, not only do I give thanks for the work that God is doing in you, but I'm confident of the work that God is doing in you. I know it started. I saw Lydia become saved. I know she got saved. I saw the slave girl repent and turn. I saw the jailer and his whole household be baptized. God started the work. And I know if he begins it, he will finish it. He will complete it. And we say, okay, then if God's going to do the work, then I don't have to do anything. I'm not responsible for anything, right? No. We don't buy into the, uh, a guy named Keswick, Keswick theology that says, let go and let God. Oh, just let God do it. We don't buy into that. Paul doesn't buy into that. Paul's going to say, you work. Philippians chapter 2, you do the work, but you work because God works. Remember that passage in verse 12? Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. 
So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Don't work for your salvation. Work out. You already have it, so work it out with fear and trembling. But it doesn't end there. You do the work because God's working. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's doing the work. So we don't just sit back and let the work happen. We work because God works. This, brothers and sisters, should be a confidence in our lives, not only for our own souls, because I know there are days where you just think, this is it, I'm done, I'm never going to get there. I took 17 steps forward yesterday and 38 billion steps backwards today. No way I'm going forward. And God says, no, I'm going to get you there. I'm going to get you there. But the other way that this should be an encouragement, not only first and foremost to your own soul if you are genuinely saved, but secondly to those around you. And does it seem like sometimes they never take steps forward? (laughs) Oh no, God's working. God's at work. God's at work in the lives of your children. If they are saved, God is working. And though it may seem like the slowest work possible, God promises that he will bring it to completion. You say, well, what about those that have defected that say, I don't want to be a part of this anymore? Well, 1 John 2.19 tells us they go out from us because they were never really of us. They were never really saved. Uh, We will know them by their fruits, Jesus says. Uh, And then Matthew 13, the parable of the soils, there are three that produce fruit but aren't genuinely saved. They kind of start doing something. One of them doesn't even take root at all, but two of them start taking root, start bearing fruit, and then thorns and other things come and just choke them out and take them up. So you say, well, I, I know somebody. I know somebody that professed Christ and will know if God's working on them by their fruit. We'll know that. And in the meantime, you can trust that if they genuinely are saved, God will bring them back to a place of repentance. I have people in my life right now that are like that. I'm wondering, God, I thought they were saved. God, please bring them back. Please bring them back. But for us who believe, if you are in Jesus Christ this morning, I want to encourage you with the same words that Paul encourages. I'm confident of the fact that you will get there. You'll get there. If you're in Christ this morning, I just want to encourage you with some verses from Scripture that tell us who we are in Jesus Christ, what we have in Christ because of his work, because of his person, because of who he is and what he has done. If you're in Christ this morning, you will have a faithfulness that will never be removed. Psalm 89:33 and Psalm 138:8. If you're in Christ, you will have a life that will never end. John 3:16. You will have a spring of water that will never cease to flow. John 4:14. 4, you will have a gift that will never be lost. John 6:37-39. You are in a hand out of which the sheep will never be snatched. John 10, 27 through 28, we already looked at. You have a chain of redemption that will never be broken, Romans 8, 28 through 30. You have a love from which we will never, can never, will never be separated from, Romans 8, 39. You have a calling that will never be revoked, Romans eleven twenty nine. You have a foundation that can never and will never be destroyed, 2 Timothy two nineteen. And you have an inheritance that will never fade out, 1 Peter 1 verses 4 through 5. If you're in Christ this morning, you have all of the blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. That's why Paul says, I'm confident. I'm confident. I'm convinced. I know that God's going to do this work. He started it. He's going to perfect it. And he's going to perfect it until that day that we see Christ face to face. It's not instantaneous perfection. Oh, how we wish it was, but it's not. It's growth. Slowly but surely, it's growth. Paul says, based on the work that I see in those around me, that I saw God working in Philippi, and now I'm remembering that work that he's done, I give thanks. I respond by utter confidence in the work that God is doing. And third and finally, we will respond with affection. We will respond with affection for those that we see God working in and through. Paul says in verse 7, Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart 
Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. That's a very, very tricky sentence. It's a very difficult sentence, and it's still part of this long run-on from verses 3 to verse 8. It's very difficult, but what he's saying is, I think rightly about you. It's right for me to feel this way because I think rightly about you, and you are in my heart. You are in my prayers. You are in my heart. I love you, and I'm constantly thinking about you. And then he says, because both in my imprisonment and in the defense, we know that word, that's apologia, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. He says, here's one of the reasons why I absolutely love you, because you haven't forsaken me. I'm a wanted man. I'm in prison. My face is up on posters all over the place, and yet you still say, Paul planted the church here. Paul's writing us letters. I love that man. God is using that man in my life in such a way that he's grown me, he's saved me. They're not giving up on him, and they are partakers of grace with me. But notice again that he says, you all are partakers of grace with me. Even the ones that he's about to write to and say, you got to fix this. You got a problem. You're squabbling. Something's going on. It's, it's really divisive. But you're still a partaker of grace. And then he says this amazing sentence in verse 8. For God is my witness. He's calling an oath, not that he has to because he's a liar, but because he wants this church to know without a shadow of a doubt. Guys, no No, this is how I feel about you. What does he say? How I long for you all, again, for everyone. Nobody is outside of that all. Everybody in the church. With the affection of Christ Jesus. I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That word affection, um, that word for innards, the the bowels, um, splognon, the, the stuff that's inside of you. In our common vernacular, we would say that, um, you know, I I give you my heart, not that I give you an actual, that you don't see on a Valentine's Day card, an actual beating, pumping heart with blood and stuff. Um, I don't think that's very romantic. You see the little cute thing that looks nothing like a heart. That's that's what we give each other. I have you in my heart. I love you and you have my heart. I give you my heart. Back then, it was I give you my guts. Try that one on Valentine's Day. Here's a picture of my guts. We know, we know. again, we still use this, not romantically, but we still use this in our common vernacular that I've got a gut feeling about this. I have a gut sense about this. Something doesn't feel right, and I feel it in my gut. That's what's going on here, but a passionate love for this church in Philippi. This, this word's actually used in Acts chapter 1 when it's describing Judas hung himself, and uh, he fell from the, the rope broke, and... He, his body was dashed on the rocks and his entrails fell out. That's what this word is. I feel this in the depth of my being for you. And it's really, it's really just adding on to how amazing his love is for this church because he says, I have the same affections as Jesus Christ has. We often think of Jesus, he, he loves us, kind of have the image of, you know, He's wearing a a white sheet with a blue sash. Looks like a surfer, blonde hair, blue eyes, even though he's Middle Eastern. Um, And we think, oh, he just loves everybody. It's It's like skipping through tulips with flowers. Oh, I love everybody. And yes, Jesus does love everybody. But what, what did the affection of Christ Jesus make him do for you and for me? It drove him to the cross. It drove him to the cross. Paul says, I have the exact same affection that Jesus Christ had when he went to the cross, when he came and lived a perfect life, a sinless life for you, and then gave you that life. Well, what do I have to do for it? Nothing. You believe. The same affection that took Jesus to the cross and nailed him there out of love for you and for me is the same affection that Paul says I have for you, the church. One pastor says it this way in regard to our love and affection for the people around us. Are you enjoying the Christians in your life right now? 
Are you enduring or are you enjoying your marriage? Are you rejoicing or are you regretting the people in your ministry? Are you delighted or disappointed with your kids? Are you blessed or are you bummed with your friends? Are you affectionate or are you afflicted with your flock? I had a a friend in high school. We played basketball together and he had an ingrown toenail. Anybody have an ingrown toenail? Ooh, painful. We are the body of Christ. Some of us are eyes, some of us are hands, some of us are are mouth pieces. God uses all sorts of different places. Some of us are kidneys. Very important job. I've had kidney stones. Please, kidneys, do your job. Some of us are toes. Some of us are toenails. My friend in high school, he gets a painful ingrown toenail. Does he go to the doctor and say, Doc, slice it off? You know what? Don't just take my toe. Take my foot. I am done with this. No, right? He would never do that. You take some medicine. It's infected. Let's fix the infection. Work on it. There's a couple painful things you have to do, but we'll fix it. We'll fix it. It'll be okay. You don't just lop off a big toe when you have an ingrown toenail. I think we tend in the body of Christ to do that. Man, you are just uh, exasperating ingrown toenail. Let's just cut it off. No, no, work. We work together. And we work with the love of Jesus Christ because we know that God has begun the work. God will end the work. He will finish it. He will bring it to completion. I think one of the biggest things that it comes down to is what are you looking for? When a vulture flies over the desert, He finds a dead carcass. Why? Because that's what he's looking for. He's searching for that. When a hummingbird flies over the desert, what does he find? He finds a precious, beautiful rose and flower. He finds that. Why? Because that's what he's looking for. What are you looking for when you come to church? When you come to Christ Bible Church, what are you looking for? Are you looking for the ingrown toenails in the church? Or are you looking for God's work in those around you? Because I think if you look for the the work of God in those around you, I think that you will give thanks. I think you'll be confident that God's working. And I think that your affection for those around you will grow. So just a couple questions as we end. Do you seek out others around you to build them up, to encourage them? Do you go out of your way to encourage the people around you? Do you have true affection for those around you who claim the name of Christ? One statistic I read somewhere said that there are 20% of people that you know that will always love you no matter what you do. 20% of people that you know that will always hate you no matter what you do. Sometimes I feel like that number's bigger. But. And then 60% that just waffle back and forth and don't really have an opinion. I don't know if that's true. But can we just make that first 20% a lot higher? That I will love you and you will love me no matter what we do. Because God in his grace has called us saved us, is sanctifying us. There are no losers in the body of Christ. What excuses do you most often give to not hang out with these so-called losers? They may be that Christ is testing your own soul. Paul's writing this letter to the EGRs as well. Remember those? The extra grace required people that you kind of look at and go, oh, here they come. Paul says, I give thanks for you all. I am confident for you all. I have affections for you all. Nobody's left out. What do you tend to give thanks for? Are your prayers filled with thanksgiving for what God is doing, or do you jump straight to requests most of the time? Are you looking for things to be thankful for? Are you looking for those things, not only in your own life, but in the lives of others? Do you have a deep confidence that God is going to finish the work he started in you? Is your confidence in what you do? Because if it is, you're going to struggle with assurance. But if your confidence is in what God does, then you will be confident until that last day when you see him face to face. Do you find yourself motivated by the grace of God and him doing the work? And then you wanting to participate in work as well. Or do you find yourself passively sitting back and just waiting to be changed? Paul says, I love you, I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. What a perfect, what a perfect way to segue into communion. Do we long for each other with the affection of Christ Jesus? Do we long for each other with the same kind of love that nailed Jesus to the cross? Or do we long for each other with the kind of love that 
we're fair weather friends. I'm going to pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time at the Lord's Supper. And then the men are going to pass out both the bread and the cup. And we're going to sing a couple songs that deal with God's character, His holiness, what the angels are singing right now in heaven. And then our response to that, the fact that we have nothing to cling to except for the cross of Christ alone. And I pray that we would examine ourselves rightly, taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner together and taking it as a family, as a family of Christ that loves each other with the same affection that Jesus had for us. Father, I pray that as we quiet our hearts and prepare to uh, take of communion, praise you for the time that we've already had in fellowship out on the patio to make things right and to reconcile. And I pray that we would now, very seriously, with absolute sobriety, deal with you, but not deal with you on the basis of our good works, because we will always come up short. God, help us right now to deal with you, not in light of our doing, but in light of the fact that you have done it all. It is finished. Father, I pray that we would be motivated by grace this morning and not work to earn grace. I pray even as we examine our hearts and see the exact same sin that we struggle with constantly, that we would confess, forsake, find mercy, and be ever motivated and ever vigilant to fight the good fight of faith, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling even this morning because you have promised that you began the work and you will bring it to completion. Father, as we stare at who you are and who we are in light of you, I pray that you would be glorified to remind us yet again of the affections of Jesus Christ that he had for us on the cross. We pray it in your name. Amen.